Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we welcome Professor Karen Woody from the WNL School of Law to the Everything Compliance Gang. In this episode, we look at the recent speech by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco on the DOJ's change in FCPA enforcement focus. Matt Kelly sets up the Monaco speech and opines on what it all might mean. Karen Woody takes a look at the SEC's role in FCPA enforcement and the comments by Gary Gensler. Jonathan Marks looks at the reinstatement of the Yates memo and what it might mean from an investigative perspective. Jay Rosen looks at her comments around monitorships and the potential for an uptick in monitorships imposed by the Department of Justice. And Jonathan Armstrong looks at what it all means from the Serious Fraud Office and EU-UK perspective. All on this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the now award-winning Everything Compliance. We have the full quintet this week, and we're going to take a deep dive into a couple of speeches from the Department of Justice and the Security Exchange Commission, Lisa Monaco and Gary Gensler. So lots to unpack, so we're going to jump right into it. Matt, you want to set the stage for us? Yeah, sure. So uh, what happened here, Tom, I'll focus mostly on the Justice Department and Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. Uh, She announced uh, several policy shifts in enforcing against corporate crime. And uh, broadly speaking, I don't think anybody would be surprised that, number one, the administration is having a shift in how it prosecutes corporate crime. Uh, And number two, what the actual shifts would therefore be. And there are four big ones that I will outline here, and then we can dive into them as we would like. Um, I think maybe first and foremost is that Deputy AG Monaco, she had said that prosecutors will now consider all of a company's past misconduct issues, uh, regardless of the specific type and whether that is civil or criminal or regulatory enforcement or anything like that, but prosecutors will look at all of a company's past history of misconduct when trying to figure out how should we resolve this current case in front of us right now. So if you are in front of the DOJ talking about a FCPA matter, uh, the department might also be thinking about what civil enforcement did you have with uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, tax avoidance if you've ever run into trouble with the IRS, uh, or if you are in financial services, whether you've had trouble with FINRA or state regulators, overseas regulators. So there's going to be a much more expansive look at your conduct history to determine if you have a good culture of compliance right now or haven't had it in the past. 
and how should we resolve that. So that's big thing number one. Big thing number two is that uh, the deputy AG rescinded prior guidance that really restricted the use of compliance monitors in settlements, and she basically warned that there will be much more liberal use of compliance monitors in settlements in the future. And uh, so there had been a specific policy that the Trump administration, DOJ, had rolled out, I want to say in 2019, uh, really presuming that monitors would be quite rare. That is now in the dustbin of history. Uh, we don't know exactly how robust the use of monitors will be, but figure that's going to be coming sometime soon. So compliance officers will have to brush up their diplomatic relations skills in dealing with outside compliance monitors, since clearly that would be a, a big part of your life if you wind up with one in a resolution. Uh, number three, big point number three, is that we are going to go back to the Yates memo standard for if you want cooperation credit in any type of settlement you are trying to reach with the Justice Department, they will want all information the company can provide on all individuals who were involved in the misconduct. Uh, for previously, during the Trump administration, at the tail end, they had curbed that standard or lowered it down to only individuals who were substantially involved in the misconduct. You had to turn over information about them. What was substantially involved? Uh, you know, there's a lot of judgment involved in that. Uh, but anyways, that's now also rescinded. And we are back to the Yates Memo standard where if you want the credit, you're going to have to cooperate and help them find any and all people who were involved in this misconduct, perhaps even including senior executives. So those are the big three things that are immediate and are already happening. And then the fourth is, I think, very interesting, but it is still in the exploratory phase, is that Ms. Monaco said she will put together a committee within the Justice Department to reconsider whether recidivist corporate offenders should still be eligible to receive deferred or non-prosecution agreements if they have already been found to have violated a previous one or they had gone through settlements before but now they have yet another incidence of misconduct now. Uh, clearly, the prior settlements didn't take if you are a recidivist, so what sterner stuff should we give in a resolution? Uh, she did not specifically say Let's be clear on this. She did not say, if you're a recidivist, you don't get any DPA or NPA. That's off the table. She said, we're going to look at whether we should take that off the table. Who is the we? We're not clear on that entirely. It's going to be a cross-Justice Department group of thinkers to figure this out. What else would maybe substitute for that? I'm not sure. And I have some questions because I think if the only other alternative is a corporate indictment, and presumably a trial and conviction, I think a lot of companies would really dig in their heels and say, this is a hill we're going to die on. We're going to go to trial. So I don't know that that's really the right way to exit uh, DPAs and NPAs for recidivists. I don't know what a good vehicle for that would be. But those are the four things that Ms. Monaco talked about. Um, Tom, the one interesting thing that she did not say was she did not say, and we're going to be more aggressive with monetary penalties, which has struck me as interesting because the Securities and Exchange Commission has said they will be more aggressive with monetary penalties. We didn't hear that from the DOJ. 
I'm not sure if it's because they thought they don't need to say that, they're just going to do it, or they're happy with their penalty power, or they forgot. Though None of that strikes me as plausible, so I'm not quite clear where the penalties might be within the Justice Department, although I suspect we're going to find out soon enough. Well, and that brings us to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Karen, uh, Gary Gensler commented on uh, DAG Monaco's speech, and of course he's had, he and his uh, commission have had lots of comments around enforcement uh, over the summer and leading up to this speech. What do you see from the SEC angle uh, from this? That's right. So he did um, comment on that speech last week uh, in his own speech to the Defense Bar and the Securities Enforcement Forum. Um, and he said essentially that this is in line and in keeping with his views and the views of the agency um, to uh, be tougher on corporate offenders. Um, it's interesting, he seems to uh, be talking sort of a little bit out of both sides of his mouth in the sense that they he has at the same time saying he uh, and the commission um, may take a different look or certainly a harder line here when it comes to accountability by way of admissions and looking at the admissions policy again. Um, that came more out of his enforcement director's speech uh, where uh, Director Gerber Grohl said something about how they are going to push for more admissions. Of course, Traditionally, the SEC does a lot of no-admit, no-deny settlements. Um, we saw a shift from that somewhat in Mary Jo White's tenure, and then they backed off that again. So it sounds like that might be coming back up to um, the to be on the table again. Sort of, I think that seems to be in keeping with the aggression that we're seeing from DOJ. Um, but at the same time, they you know are talking about the same idea of like, well, we still want you to come in and cooperate. How we determine what is cooperation is, again, maybe something they're reconsidering. Um, and so they really do, they say both things, which is, you know, the best way to handle any enforcement action is for you companies to come in and uh, talk to us about it, um, be as cooperative as possible. Oh, but we also are going to hold you accountable. So it's um, to me, it seems like... Uh, uh, a little bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario um, again, but uh, it's, it's certainly, I think, in line with the tone and um, sort of the, the, the feeling we're getting from DOJ. They seem, those two agencies seem, seem to be in lockstep. So, Jay Rosen, uh, some really interesting comments around monitorships that Matt alluded to from your vantage point as Mr. Monitors. What did you see in this speech that either intrigued you or you thought was new or different? Thanks, Tom. I uh, highlighted some nuggets that I'd like to share with everyone. And uh, according to Dag Monaco, uh, effective immediately, the new policy on corporate monitors supersedes both the Benchkowski memo and the Morford memo. And these were two memos by DOJ. Morford basically sets up all the rules, the guidelines for how you can be a monitor, how they're selected and what they could do. And then basically all the teeth from Morford got ripped out with Ben Sikowski. So uh, it's great when she says that the new policy supersedes everything immediately. And basically here are the high level highlights on what monitors can do. So monitors can be an effective resource. Monaco affirmed that the independent 
Corporate monitors can be an effective resource in assessing a corporation's compliance with terms of a corporate criminal resolution. Number two, monitors reduce the risk of recidivism, which was what we were talking about a couple minutes ago, and compliance lapses. Monitors can also be an effective means of reducing the risk of repeat misconduct and compliance lapses identified during corporate criminal investigations. And here's the part that kind of warms our heart at uh, AMI. Monitors should be used when there is a demonstrated need and clear benefit. The department should favor the imposition of the monitor when there's a demonstrated need for and clear benefit to be derived. A company's compliance program and controls are untested, ineffective, and inadequately resourced. When a company's compliance program and controls meet the above standards and at the time of resolution, department attorneys should be considered for imposing a monitorship. A company's compliance program is deficient and inadequate. This is particularly true if the investigation reveals that a complex compliance program deficient or inadequate in numerous and significant respects can warrant a monitor. Above all, DOJ has clearly articulated the case for independent monitors, especially when a company lacks an effective compliance program. So for all those things, uh, we feel it will be a, a very happy Thanksgiving and a, a nice holiday season. Tom, back to you. So Jonathan Marks, uh, some interesting comments around investigations and tied back into the resumption of the Yates memo or the requirements of the Yates memo and now having to turn over uh, quite a bit more information to either the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission. What does that mean for those out there on the front line doing these investigations, whether an in-house resource or uh, an outside uh, resource such as yourself? First of all, I changed my name today to Danny Ocean, thanks to Matt. Um, but <laughs> second, um, with, with regards to investigations, you know, one of the things that has really been, I guess, part of our investigative toolkit for a while was collecting cell phones and laptops and other electronic media. And what we keep seeing is there's a pattern of people that are using these devices that are personal devices for business transactions and um, or or to conduct business. And I think the government has realized and the regulators have realized that as part of the investigation, you know, it's not only turning over, you know, all of the contracts and agreements, depending on what the nature of the matter is, but it's also the emails, it's the WhatsApp, it's the Slack messaging, you know, it's all the internal other things that are out there where there could be communications related to the specific issues at hand. And that's really changed the game from a forensic technology perspective, because as you well know, and I'm sure Jonathan Armstrong could comment on this as well as most everybody else, I mean, the data privacy rules are just unbelievable. And so, one of the things that we keep advising our clients on is, you know, not only having a robust investigation policy, you know, having all the pillars of a proper investigation policy, but you really should go back and revisit your, you know, bring your own device policy and other those and other things related to that, because that's one of those things that could throw up a roadblock and it could potentially, you know, prevent you from getting, I, I think, sort of, um, 
you know, maximum consideration from from the regulators as far as investigations go. And so, you know, um, it's um, it's 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 pretty interesting to see what's going on. But I really do think that it's really over the next two to three years, you're going to see a complete change in that total landscape, you know, with regards to how how mess how people are messaging and what they're you know how they're communicating um me my advice to everybody out there is go the tony soprano method get a burner phone never put anything in email and you know at the end of the month throw it away and get a new one wow you may be able to start an entire new practice uh based on that advice alone uh, what selling burner phones matt kelly and i already bought ten thousand of them so we're good all right Jonathan Armstrong, you have now heard the commentary from the U.S. contingent of Everything Compliance, uh, but I really wanted to ask you, sitting from your perspective, do these pronouncements really mean anything new? Uh, do we need to think about data privacy in a different way in light of what the DOJ and SEC have said, or are these not really relevant uh, because GDPR and the U.K. data privacy requirements really stand alone and apart from uh, anything the United States might say. Yeah, I think they're definitely significant developments. If, um, you know, if, for example, I look at GDPR, GDPR is much more enforced than it was when it first came in. And uh, as I sit here, we're over a billion, with a B, uh, euros worth of uh, fines currently. And in addition, we've had quite a lot of activity around uh, data protection class actions as well. And I guess uh, class actions are maybe one of three things that we have to thank the US for importing into Europe, like KFC, McDonald's, milkshakes, and the music of John Denver, uh, not necessarily in that order. Um, but um, whenever you have an internal investigation, particularly in the organization, you have to look at, Jonathan Marks has said, at the data protection aspects. So we have had uh, class actions from uh, employees previously, and we will have those in the future. Just as an aside, I would mention that the UK Supreme Court have looked at this just this week in a case called Lloyd and Google. They've sort of not allowed US-style class actions, so opt-in, uh, uh, sorry, opt-out class actions, but they uh, still allow uh, opt-in class actions. And obviously, if there were an allegation that a an investigation had been conducted improperly, like we've had with the uh, some of the uh, uh, Russian-related litigation, the Gurieva case, for example, the case over the Trump dossier, then data protection and privacy concerns become front and centre. So I, I guess there's always this challenge between you are going to offend a regulator somewhere, whether that be a US regulator, whether that or whether that be a European regulator, unless you can construct the investigation properly. And whereas the old equation pre-GDPR used to be, well, if I can't please both regulators, I'll please 
the US because the fines are higher in the US. That equation is different now under GDPR because we've got more significant fines and because there's more likelihood of an EU regulator being interested. Jonathan, we had a, uh, I believe, UK enforcement action, I think it was earlier this year, where a uh, investigator was fined for, uh, I'm not sure if it was a negligent investigation or report, but the prevailing parties were able to demonstrate that they uh, that the fi- uh, report was not correct. Does a uh, law firm who performs an internal investigation that's becomes the basis of a DOJ or SEC enforcement action run that same risk in the United Kingdom if it's a UK citizen, or is that something that's available under GDPR as well? Yeah, um, it is under uh, GDPR, both um, in what you might call UK GDPR post-Brexit and in EU GDPR. So there are very various obligations that apply to uh, law firms and law firms' clients. And as you say, these are being litigated more. So there's an obligation for those uh, data protection geeks under GDPR Article 51A to process data uh, lawfully, fairly, and in a transparent manner. And in an internal investigation, oftentimes that will involve Uh, witnesses in the investigation being given a sort of almost like a modified upjohn to tell them what's going to happen to their data. And you've got to be transparent with them and you've got to be fair. And if the data that you're collecting isn't uh, accurate, then that can potentially be a violation of uh, GDPR Article 5.1. D, and we've had cases there, as I said, the the Trump dossier case, for example, where individuals said that a a law firm commissioned report said bad things about them, which and, and they were not given an opportunity, if you like, to correct the record, and they got uh, damages from the UK court as a result. The damages were reduced because of the, um, let's just say, uh, other circumstances surrounding these particular individuals, but nonetheless, they did recover damages. And equally, we've also had cases where a badly conducted internal investigation led to the collapse of a subsequent criminal trial with much embarrassment for the serious fraud office and I believe consequences with the SFO for the law firm involved. You know, obviously, you're trying to do these investigations by way of cooperation. Part of the cooperation factor, if you like, is the law firm that you're using. And if the uh, regulators or prosecutors trust firm A less than firm B, then that might factor into what happens in the investigation and its eventual resolution. We'll be right back with more from Jonathan Armstrong after this message.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Jonathan, what about the um, <clears throat> comments by both the Department, I guess mainly from the Department of Justice, on wider cooperation with international uh, anti-corruption enforcement agencies, such as a serious fraud office in the United Kingdom? Uh, there has always been perceived, at least, or announced, discussed, robust cooperation. Could that cooperation uh, even increase more for more international-focused investigations, including perhaps other uh, nations uh, beyond the United Kingdom as well? I I think that's definitely uh, right. I think we uh, did have the situation maybe five years ago where there wasn't a great deal of international cooperation, and it tended to be somewhat one-sided. You know, when I looked at the tables last, uh, US, UK, Canada uh, were, if you like, um, starting investigations and then dragging people along behind them. I think that has changed. We've seen over the last five years or so, for example, much more cooperation from the Swiss authorities, where traditionally it was perceived to be hard to get information out of Switzerland. And I think we have seen some major investigations, uh, Airbus being one, for example, that have been UK-led or UK-instigated with the US and uh, France and other authorities uh, coming along behind. We've also seen investigations uh, originated out of Brazil, for example, in the uh, um, Lava Jata uh, investigations. So I think uh, uh, international investigation into bad things is more of a team sport than it was. And I think these uh, announcements will be seen by some as opening the door to more um, prosecutions and investigations and will be perceived as the U.S. administration, the current U.S. administration, being more interested in that sort of stuff than the prior administration was. And with the... uh I'm not sure what the right term might be, imbroglio perhaps, uh, surrounding the uh, the current uh, serious fraud office. How do you think that will play to not only the bar in the United Kingdom, but really the, the general public and maybe even the Labor Party having greater cooperation? Or is that something that really sets apart from other than people like you and I who uh, live and breathe this stuff? Well, without being party political, we have a leader of the Labour Party who truly understands the criminal justice system. That's in his blood. He was formerly the Director of Public Prosecutions and the DPP effectively is in charge of the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, and they have powers under the Bribery Act too. And indeed the CPS brought bribery 
prosecutions, um, you know, have brought them previously, and they brought bought the first prosecutions under the Bribery Act. So we have a Labour Party leader who understands how to prosecute corruption. It would be an unkind comment to say that Boris Johnson understands corruption, uh, but he doesn't understand how to prosecute it. And I think as a result, uh, and I'm trying to be as politically neutral as I can, we have different perceptions on how big the issue is, and we have different perceptions on how to fix it. The SFO clearly does have its issues at the moment. We've discussed them on our podcasts in the past. Uh, I think they will reach some sort of resolution. We have terms for SFO directors. It may well be that the current director's term will not be renewed or she may not seek a renewal. And probably we will have some uh, changes in that organisation. To be fair to her, some of the issues were issues that she has inherited. And whether or not the SFO, there are calls again to merge the SFO with, for example, the CPS or have some different structure remains to be seen. But as you say, this is likely to be something that gets political tension, particularly because corruption has a high focus at the moment. You know, we had a prime minister that had to schlep up to to an environmental summit to reassure people that his government was not corrupt. And it's unfortunate that you've got to take away the focus of that conference to sort of deny the rumours that are going around the room. That's not something that's good for the UK, and it's not something that's good for the global fight against corruption. I was reminded by one of the great slides of Richard Nixon, which is, I am not a crook, uh, but uh, if we could maybe bring that forward to 2021, I am not sleazy. I may be sleazy, but I am not corrupt. So uh, on that note, Jonathan, uh, thank you very much. So now we're on to fan favorites of shout-outs and rants. So, Matt Kelly, do you have a rant and or shout-out for us today? Tom, I'm just going to keep it light with a shout-out to People Magazine for naming Paul Rudd the sexiest man alive. Uh, personally, I think he is a excellent actor. I look forward to when he wins an Oscar for Ant-Man 3 coming out in 2023. Um, and he seems like a genuinely nice down-to-earth guy, never mind the fact that he seems to also be some sort of divine being who does not age, but that clearly is the case. As to being the sexiest man alive, I have asked several different women all week long, is that really true that he is the sexiest man alive? They have all looked at me like I've had three heads for even thinking, why would you ask that question? Of course he is. And I'm not sure if it's because they all think he's sexy or they think that he's just an awesome guy or some blend of the two. But the more accolades we can put on Paul Rudd, the better. So I hope he enjoys his year of fame. Could be. Could be. So, Karen, uh, that's some big shoes to follow on. What do you have for us today? Well, I'm going to keep it light as well and stay in the pop culture type vein. And I'm going to give a shout out to something I've already alluded to, which is uh, the HBO show Succession. Very different than the last time I gave a shout out to a show, which was Ted Lasso. That's a very different genre of show. 
But Succession, I mean, I think should be mandatory viewing for everyone who's in a business associations class, a securities regulation class. I mean, it's intense, but it's, uh, it is, I think, a very interesting snapshot into uh, a fairly despicable group of people. But, um, but how, you know, major companies are run and, and some of the challenges they, they face. So, Jay Rosen, what do you have for us today? I have a shout out to OBS, Odell Beckham Sr. And this goes to any parent whose kids participate in paid or non-paid sports. If you're not getting enough balls thrown your way, take it to Instagram, get yourself traded and go to Tinseltown and join the Rams. So now if the Rams do not win the Super Bowl with OBJ, uh, whose fault is it now? Back to you, Tom. Jonathan Armstrong, uh, will you be uh, shouting out or ranting today? Yeah, a, a, a bit of both. And I'm staying in uh, Pop Culture 2 uh, with the connection between uh, the singer Duffy and Dr. Ruja Ignatova. So, um, so, well, 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 what might be the connection, you say? Well, Duffy had a fire at her penthouse and she sold it to Dr. Ruja for uh, oh, or somebody sold it. Uh, uh, there's no um, uh, suspicion of wrongdoing on Duffy's behalf. For 13.5 million sterling to Dr. Rouge, and Dr. Rouge also bought the flat downstairs to keep her shoes in and to have somewhere for her maid to live. So who is Dr. Rouge? You might ask. Well. She's um, one of the first Bitcoin millionaires. She launched a Bitcoin operation called OneCoin, which she called a Bitcoin killer. But the really great thing about Dr. Rouge is she managed to sort of take two of the oldest scams going, pyramid selling and Ponzi schemes, and unite them with Bitcoin because nobody really understands Bitcoin investments. And she went along and she did road shows and great events. Uh, She had her um, multi-level marketing pyramid selling team who would get people to buy in. And uh, the trial started in Germany of three associates uh, in September. And that's how we now know about the penthouse. There's a US law firm answering very awkward questions as we speak about that transaction. It is thought that 4 billion, that's with a B, 4 billion euros has gone missing and Dr. Rouge has gone missing as well. She left two Andy Warhol pictures in the uh, apartment, so no doubt they'll be trying to reduce that 4 billion euros deficit by selling them but uh, it's certainly a no mercy case and uh, the court are likely to rain on her parade if they catch up with her so Jonathan Marks our uh, resident curmudgeon what do you have for us this week I'm going to go back to the hospitality industry again because I had a chance to travel this past week so um it's sort of a mystery or life question for me. And that is when you check into a hotel room and you go to the front desk, where you check into a hotel and you go to the front desk and you give them, they give you your key and then you walk 
I don't know, two or three miles with all the crap that you lug across the world and you get to your room, you put your key in the door and you open it up and you walk in and you find a man and a woman sleeping in your bed. So, you know, we talk about internal controls, you know, hey, hospitality industry, if somebody's in room 1730 and you give me that same room, that's a real problem. Wake up. Smell the coffee. Oh, that's right. You don't give coffee out anymore because of COVID. So I will step in with my shout out and I'm going to go in a completely different direction. It is not lighthearted. It is something very serious. And that's the fine delivered by the National Football League to C.D. Lamb. Now, what was Mr. Lamb's transgression? Mr. Lamb played a football game with his shirt tail out. And for the fashion police on this call and for you listeners, you should see the outfits these guys and gal have on. Uh, They are true fashionistas. This is just unacceptable behavior. $15,400 slapped on C.D. Lamb. I am so proud of the NFL. And if you contrast that with the fine leveled on Aaron Rodgers for exposing people to COVID-19 because he was immunized but not vaccinated, it was only 14500 So I'm glad the NFL fashion police have stepped forward. Keep your shirt tail tucked in. It's an important issue, and it's something that every American uh, needs to be uh, not only aware of, but proud of from the NFL. So thank you, NFL, for having your priorities straight. I want to thank the panel for everything. This has been a great, great episode. Uh, two of the greatest phrases we've had in everything compliance. So So off to the races for everyone. We will look forward to getting back together in a couple of weeks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks where we take up some additional topics of the day. You can find out more information about the panelists in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in the Hill Country of Texas, I hope you will check out my latest podcast, the Hill Country Podcast, where I take a look at people, places, and things in the Texas Hill Country. Everything Compliance posts bi-weekly on Thursday. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.